For two days, the 20-year-old Edith Piaf was interrogated by police. Exhausted, grieving, and desperate to prove her innocence, Edith answered every question, gave every name she could think of, and still wasn't convincing them she hadn't just shot a man through the eye. The rising star had worked her way from street performances to cabarets, to radio, a few recent recordings, and even a cameo in a film. In her first three years of life, she'd been abandoned, ill, and malnourished. From ages three to seven, she'd lived in a brothel, her father having left her there while he went on performing as a contortionist and acrobat for circuses and street crowds. From ages seven to sixteen, she traveled with her father, first in the circus, but his anger issues and drinking problem kept forcing him to rely on street performances for income, as he had difficulty keeping a consistent job. At 16, she got her own apartment in Belleville, a neighborhood in Paris, where she paid for herself with the money she made singing for street crowds, even though that was an illegal way to make francs. She moved to Pigalle, another Parisian neighborhood, where the teenager became too involved with members of the milieu, the French mafia. She walked away from them and Pigalle with a grazed bullet to the neck. She lost her two-year-old daughter to meningitis, a loss that would follow her for a lifetime. In her late teens, she booked sporadic gigs in questionable nightclubs until Louis Leplay had discovered her at 19 years old while she was singing on a Parisian street corner. He changed her life, gave her someone to confide in, helped her meet important contacts that were setting a fire under her burgeoning career, and was the first healthy, safe, and trustworthy authority figure she'd ever had. Now she was a leading suspect in his murder. He was killed eight months to the day after her daughter had died. This is where we pick the story of the extraordinary Edith Piaf back up and finish exploring the life of one of the greatest music legends to ever live. Her life, her talent, her music, her struggle, and success are all ingredients in one of the most remarkable histories we've ever covered. And we're just getting started. This is the true story of Edith Piaf, the Little Sparrow. I'm your host, Kristen Robine Terpstra, and this is the History Cache. Let's have a look inside. In this episode, we touch quite a bit on substance abuse and briefly on suicide idealization. If either of those things are triggers for you, you may want to skip this one, or at least proceed with caution. After Louis Leplay's murder, the police interrogated everyone from Legernes, Louis' cabaret where Edith got her first real start. Edith was questioned exhaustively for two days while grieving the unexpected and sudden loss of her friend. Edith didn't murder Louis Leplay. She had nothing to do with his death. This became obvious to the police as soon as they verified her alibi. She hadn't even been in the building at the time of the murder. Plus, there was a witness. Leplay's housekeeper was present when she said four men broke into Louis's apartment. They tied her up and began accosting Louis. She believed they were there to frighten and blackmail him for money. 
but when their gun had gone off, possibly accidentally, that blackmail turned into murder. The perpetrators fled after ransacking the apartment and finding no money. Despite the housekeeper's description of the four men, they were never found. There's speculation they were tied to the Mafia, but that has never been fully verified. Louis Leplay's murder remains unsolved to this day. While the police had let Edith go, the press did not. She had started to gain popularity with her show at Louis' Club, other performances, her film debut, and radio appearances, along with the few recordings she'd done. She was just famous enough that the papers smelled a scandal they could sell, even if the story wasn't true. Her guilt was insinuated in the press, even though she'd been cleared of all suspicion by the authorities. For the rest of her life, the papers would pick up any scandal they could regarding Edith, especially when it came to her erratic love life. Author Carolyn Burke, in her biography on Edith Piaf called No Regrets, which is the main source used for this series, touches on this and the way the sensationalization of Edith's life can take away from her musical legacy when she says, quote, Women were either whores or Madonnas in the popular imagination. Piaf's many love affairs, as sensationalized in the press, evoked both archetypes which in turn complicated her legend as the scrappy street singer who made her way out of the slums on the strength of her voice. Even now, they may cause us to undervalue the musical intelligence with which she made her voice into a finely tuned instrument while nourishing her most enduring love affair, her intimacy with her audience." Unquote. Edith's music and her audience would always be the true loves of her life. At 20 years old, the grieving Edith hadn't yet developed the thick skin needed to deflect a scandal-hungry press. According to Burke, after being hunted down by a journalist for Eclair Journal, the journalist kept pressing her for questions, eager to scandalize the event. In response, Edith just sobbed and said, My friends are gone. I have no one. Leave me alone. This was a dark moment for Edith. But even though he was gone, the connections she'd made after Louis had discovered her were catapulting her into notoriety. More club owners wanted her to sing, and she was turning her grief into concentration, honing her talents, and focusing on her career. Burke suspects part of her focus came from a lack of distraction after her friend Mamone was gone for a time after the murder. If you remember from the last episode, Mamone had been working with Edith since she was 14 and Edith was 16. Even Edith later said Mamone was a bad influence, and she would become increasingly hot and cold as Edith gained success. Mamone went on to write a highly contradictory and controversial autobiography in which she falsely claims to be Edith's half-sister. Though their friendship was rocky and often destructive, for years, Mamone offered Edith the companionship she craved. After Louis' murder, Mamone was arrested when it was discovered she was underage. She was moved to a home for wayward girls, and for a while, this helped Edith to focus on her career. That career was taking off. Through a friend and contact she'd met through Louis, a radio host named Jacques Canetti, she recorded four more songs with a full orchestra. Also through Kennedy, she joined La Jeune Chanson in 1936. 
This was a traveling show that started in Paris, followed by a singing tour throughout France. The work was healing for Edith and helped her realize what kind of life she wanted. She wrote to her friend and mentor, another contact she'd made through Louis, Jacques Bourgit, saying she was done with her old lovers, friends, and everything she'd left behind in Pigalle. However, after Mamone returned, staying on the straight and narrow became more difficult. Edith would never completely free herself from a lifestyle that included heavy drinking and later drugs for long. She would struggle with addiction her entire life, just the way both of her parents had. She did try repeatedly to better herself and situation by welcoming more positive influences into her life. After her last recording session, she met lyricist Raymond Asso. She loved his songs and was eager to work with him, but despite being brought to tears by Edith's voice, he refused to work with her because he didn't like Mamone, didn't like how much she drank, didn't like her associates from Pigal, who he considered lowlifes, and believed she was heading down a path leading not to success, but failure due to a lack of discipline and self-destruction. In 1937, after a year of refusing to work with her, Edith called Asso nearly in a panic. She said she was out of money, close to homelessness, and desperately in need of songs as well as direction. On the other end of the line, Asso believed Edith was finally desperate enough to turn her life around. He told her immediately to get in a taxi and come see him. She noted this as a major turning point in her life, saying of it, quote, I was saved. Asso didn't have the same compassion as Louis Leplay. He was hard on her, frustrated at how undisciplined and wild she was. But he saw her potential, too. He spent the next three years helping Edith hone her musical and social skills. I used the Eliza Doolittle analogy in the last episode when talking about Edith and Louis Leplay, but I should have saved it for this one. Also, and Edith worked on everything. Her table manners, her posture, her accent, her acquaintances, and the way she moved when she sang. Before, Edith would keep her arms glued to her side, awkward and unmoving. She'd distort the words of her songs almost as if she weren't paying attention to their meaning. The two would spend hours at a time on diction, movement, feeling the lyrics as she sang them, and enunciating everything perfectly. According to Burke, Asso made a list of people who weren't allowed to see Edith anymore. This included Mamone, who Asso believed to be a bad influence, and it also included her father, Louis Gassion. Louis, like her mother Lean and her friend Mamone, had been asking Edith for money constantly. Each week, Asso would meet up with her father and give him money from Edith's earnings to keep him at bay. From what I've read, the relationship between Asso and Edith became increasingly controlling. He was telling her who she could be around, how to speak, how to sing, and handling all of her money. It was an intense mentorship. Edith later said of it, quote, It took him three years to cure me. Three years of patient affection to teach me that there was another world beyond that of prostitutes and pimps. Three years to cure me of Pigal, of my chaotic childhood, to become a woman and a star instead of a phenomenon with a voice that people listen to as if being shown a rare animal at a fair." Unquote. 
Edith made connections through Asso. Through him, she met Marguerite Monod, and the two of them, according to Burke, would be the first female songwriting team of their kind. They would remain colleagues and friends for the rest of their lives. To help inspire Edith, Asso took her to the prestigious Théâtre de l'ABC, a vaudeville theater, to see the famous actress and singer Marie Dubas. Her performance at the ABC brought Edith to tears. A starstruck Edith returned to the theater whenever she could to study Dubas' movements, expressions, gestures, and acute ability to capture an audience. Asso tried repeatedly to get Edith a show at the ABC, but the theater director, Mitty Golden, kept refusing his requests. He thought Edith was too young and too inexperienced. Plus, she was still associated with the murder of Louis Leplay in the press. But Asso was relentless. He genuinely believed in Edith and was finally able to convince Mitty to give her a chance. She would be an opening act, closing the first part of the evening's performances before the main star, Edith's favorite, Marie Dubas, went on. Edith was scheduled to sing five songs. On March 25, 1937, she showed up in her now iconic black dress, a look chosen by Louis Leplay before his death. She was careful and purposeful in her movements, remembering everything she and Asso had worked on tirelessly. Now she was standing before a prestigious audience, before her icon, Marie Dubas, whom she had studied almost obsessively, and the room fell silent as La Mom Piaf, the little sparrow, gave it everything she had. She was magnificent. The audience wouldn't let her go, demanding she sing another song. The theater director, Mitty Golden, who had doubted her and fully expected her to fail, was now ordering the curtain to be re-raised so she could sing again for an audience who went wild at this new, polished, professional chanteuse. On this night, Edith Piaf became a star. The papers raved about her performance, even though she hadn't been the main event. Now, life picked up pace fast. She was booked, even singing a show the next day. She went on tour. Belgium, France, casinos, theaters, you name it. And by now, Asso had become her lover. For the next two years, she sang songs only Asso wrote. Over time, she began formulating her own versions of these songs, changing a refrain here and there, adding her own gestures, and she began moving away from Asso's direction, embracing her own instincts, refining her repertoire the way she envisioned it, and molding her performances into something that became more and more a product of her own ideas, rather than Asso's. By her second performance at the ABC, she was no longer billed as La Mom Piaf, the Little Sparrow, but simply Edith Piaf. This would remain her name for the rest of her life. She kept booking cabarets, bigger and bigger venues, and touring. Her popularity grew as she won over both critics and audiences. She worked constantly, sometimes performing two shows a day. While Piaf's star was rising, a dark tension was enveloping Europe. By now, Hitler had annexed Austria, and the French army, anticipating invasion, was mobilizing. The strain felt throughout her country only elevated the pressure Edith was feeling. 
Despite her success, her ever-increasing popularity, and her excellent reviews, Edith constantly felt like she wasn't good enough. She believed her past, her poverty, her mistakes, her background all accumulated into something she should be ashamed of. She wrote, quote, God gave me everything, and I'm destroying my own happiness. The earth is full of filth like me. That's why there are wars. And also, despite their love, despite how far she had come, was still controlling everything from where and when she sang to who she could see and how she spent her money. And he was always quick to point out her flaws. After receiving an especially critical letter from Aso while she was resting away from him in the country between shows, she wrote back to him, saying, quote, My dear love, how much it must have cost you to write such awful things. But you're right. I'm stupid. I always told you I was, and you tried to convince me that I was intelligent. Besides the fact that I did all those dumb things before I met you only proves my lack of intelligence. She goes on to say, but you're going too far to say all the things you said in your letter. I hate myself. I have no confidence in myself whatsoever." Unquote. Considering Edith's success and undeniable talent, it may seem surprising to hear how critical and self-depreciating her inner dialogue was. But this isn't abnormal, especially for someone who experienced such significant trauma in childhood and in her early young adult life. There's no understating how much our early childhood development affects the way we learn, think, feel, and act when we're older. No one's life is stress-free. We all have and will continue to have hurdles and difficulties we need to face. But the way we're taught to handle those obstacles and the tools we are or are not given to help regulate our responses to difficulty is a huge factor in who we become. Let's get a bit psychological for a moment. According to psychologist Dr. Carol Westby, who is 10,000 times more qualified than I am to discuss these things, quote, Learning how to cope with adversity is an important part of healthy development. When we are threatened, our heart rate, blood pressure, and stress hormones increase. When a young child's stress response systems are activated within an environment of supportive relationships with adults, these physiological effects are buffered. However, if the stress response is extreme and long-lasting, and buffering relationships are unavailable to the child, the result can be damaged neurological systems, repercussions affecting all aspects of child development and health. Adverse childhood experiences can have serious long-term impacts on a child's health and well-being by contributing to high levels of toxic stress that derail healthy physical, social, emotional, and cognitive development. Dr. Westby goes on in her article, which will be in the show notes, saying there are many adverse childhood experiences which can impact us in the long term, like abuse of any kind witnessing violence, bullying, social and economic issues, divorce, abandonment, neglect, death of a loved one, and an unsafe environment. 33% of children with two or more adverse childhood experiences, called ACEs for short, have a chronic health condition involving a special care need compared with 13.6% of children who do not. Young children exposed to five or more significant adverse experiences face a 76% likelihood of having one or more delays in their language, emotional, or brain development. 
before the age of three, Edith was abandoned, malnourished to the point of illness and blindness. She was neglected by a mother with substance abuse issues. Her environment was never safe. From ages three to seven, she was raised in a brothel, saw violence, more substance abuse, only saw her father when he felt like visiting. The same father who, after taking her back at age seven, beat her several times that we know of and had anger issues so great that he couldn't keep down a job. She saw him go from woman to woman, some of whom also abused Edith to the point where she tried running away back to the brothel at the age of 10. After that, she sang on the street for coins, was at the mercy of a violent pimp who was involved with the mafia. She had an unexpected teenage pregnancy, her boyfriend kidnapped their child, her daughter died at age two, Louis Leplay, the one authority figure who treated her well and showed her real compassion and safety for the first time, was murdered, and she was accused of his death. Now, she was with a man who had no problem telling her she was stupid. Of course, she had a critical inner voice. The fact she was able to leave the life she had been leading and not end up like her mother or father, both of whom were constantly coming to her for money, is incredible. Her grit and success were a statistical anomaly. Edith would struggle with this scathing inner voice of hers, always. She'd already developed a dependence on alcohol and later drugs. She'd use sex and a series of relationships as a way of continuously searching for the feeling of finally being loved. Eventually, she developed an abhorrence to being alone. She always needed someone around her. Later in life, when a reporter asked why she couldn't be alone, she said it was because of ghosts from her past who came to haunt her. When the reporter asked who those ghosts were, she wouldn't say. It's heartbreaking to read some of the things Edith thought and said about herself. Sometimes while researching this, I'd have to just walk away for a while, because all I wanted to do was somehow reach back through time, give her a hug, and tell her how much her music would mean to the world nearly a century later. But even if I could, it probably wouldn't matter. Because when we can't show ourselves love, compassion, acceptance, and forgiveness, at least a little bit, no external source of those things will ever be enough. For three years, Edith and Asso worked together. As Edith transformed from a rough-cut diamond into a polished professional, she began realizing she was capable of more than Asso's limited vision of her. He controlled everything, from who she was allowed to see to how much of her own earnings she was allowed to spend, and she was at a point where she knew she could do those things herself, and she wanted autonomy. When her contract with him was up, the now 23-year-old Edith wanted control over her own life. Asso told her he thought it was a mistake, that she needed him, but that he would accept whatever she decided. She decided it was time they parted ways professionally. The two would remain friends, even as their romantic and professional relationships faded, and she began working with other collaborators. She started working with composer Marguerite Minot, who Edith described as the living incantation of art and the woman she admired most in the world. Although she would work with many collaborators and composers over her career, Edith and Marguerite, along with Asso, were the first to shape the repertoire that would make Edith a household name. As for Asso, in 1939, when the 24-year-old Edith was now well-established as professional chanteuse, he was called to active duty in the French Alps. 
that September, Hitler invaded Poland. Two days later, France and Britain declared war on Germany. With also gone Mamone, Edith's Moves Genie, or malicious spirit, as she would describe her later, returned. She also met her next romantic partner, Paul Maurice, a 28-year-old who had recently won a singing contest and had fallen head over heels for Piaf as soon as he'd met her. According to Burke, the two moved into a furnished apartment near L'Arc de Triomphe. It was the nicest, biggest place she'd ever lived up to that point in her life. She marveled at the space, the dining room, the guest rooms, and grand piano, exclaiming with excitement that now she wouldn't have to go anywhere to work with composers. They could come to her. Over the course of their relationship, Edith would mentor Paul, as also had her, though she would be far less controlling. He later credited his success to her musical intelligence and tutelage. When she was 24, she met Jean Cocteau. He was a French poet, playwright, filmmaker, painter, and just about everything in between. Already famous when he met Edith, he would become one of the most influential artists of the 20th century. He and Edith would retain a lifelong friendship that would bring great meaning and comfort to both of them. He even wrote a play for her called Le Bel Indifférent about unrequited love. Though Edith was unsure of herself as an actress at first, the play generated great reviews describing Edith as magnificent and passionate. Edith would act in films and plays many times over her career. For the rest of that year, Edith kept performing for sold-out houses as she continued to be surprised at her own success. After war was declared, there had been a three-week period during which French performance venues were closed. Now they were open again, and many Parisians fully believed the war would not reach them. They thought Germany didn't have the ability to mobilize an attack on France, and if they did, it would be repelled by the Maginot Line. This was a 280-mile-long, heavily fortified defense line consisting of fortresses, turrets, underground bunkers, minefields, and well-armed soldiers. It was fortified with reinforced concrete and 55 million tons of steel. Building it cost the equivalent of around $9 billion today and had taken 16 years to complete. It was considered a marvel of ingenuity that could stop everything from heavy artillery to poison gas attacks. But while the Maginot Line protected the border between France and Germany, it did not extend to the border between France and Belgium. The French weren't too worried about this, because if the Germans were to try crossing into France from Belgium, they'd have to contend with the Ardennes wilderness, something they believed no army could penetrate. It was thick, with trees, mountains, rough, uneven terrain, and minimal roads. However, the Germans knew the Ardennes, having spent time there during World War I. Germany knew the Maginot Line was highly fortified and that meeting it head-on would be useless. So, they went around it. They marched through Belgium and the Ardennes wilderness, at which point they were able to circle back behind the Maginot Line attack it from the rear, and capture it, along with 500,000 prisoners. Now, Hitler was coming for Paris.
As the Germans advanced on Paris, a million Parisians left, not wanting to remain in the capital under Nazi occupation. Edith left before Germany's troops arrived. She headed to Provence, where she remained for two weeks before deciding to return to her apartment in Paris. Two days after she returned, Nazi troops hung a swastika from l'Arc de Triomphe, and all the occupied Parisians could do was watch as the symbol of their oppressors flapped in the French wind. According to Burke, all entertainment venues closed. France was cut up into occupied and unoccupied zones. Three-fifths of the country at this point was now occupied. Many people who could leave did, but not everyone could. Some fled, some hid, and most were out of options. Marie Dubas, the famous singer Edith had idolized when she'd seen her at the ABC Theater, and the same singer she'd opened for on the night she truly became Edith Piaf, was Jewish. She was banned by the Vichy government, placed under house arrest by the Gestapo, her apartment was raided, and she was forced to flee to Switzerland. Dubas was able to stay there until the end of the war, but upon her return to France, she would learn her sister and mother had both been executed. Her nephew had been sent to a concentration camp, and no one ever heard from him again. Edith was much luckier. She traveled to Toulouse. Her partner Paul was stationed there, as well as her old friend Jacques Canetti, the first person to air Edith on the radio. She and Paul toured the southern unoccupied zones over the summer, but by the fall, Edith wanted to go home. Paris was always home for Edith. They returned to an occupied city. Swastikas and German troops were everywhere. Clocks had been changed to an hour earlier to match German time. The nightclubs and venues had been reopened to give a false sense of normalcy to an uneasy population. And now, according to Burke, all programs for any show had to be submitted to the propaganda staffel, or censor, lest it contain any anti-fascist content. Edith herself was censored, after singing a song for an audience called Le Fanion de la Légion, about a besieged French garrison that heroically held out against an enemy. The song inspired the French people in the audience, who became emboldened enough to erupt in condemnatory whistles aimed at the German members of the audience. She was given a standing ovation by the French, and was told by the Germans she was no longer allowed to sing that song. Not long afterwards, three more of her songs were censored, two of them because they gave French audiences hope, and one of them because it had been written by a Jewish composer. All songs written by Jewish artists were prohibited from being sung, and life for Jewish people in Paris would only become more difficult and more dangerous. Edith was a big enough name now that although she was censored, she was able to get away with more than she would have otherwise. On a radio program, she was heard saying that she couldn't stand Hitler. The censors took note, but did nothing. The German papers didn't like Edith. One pro-Nazi paper said of her, quote, Piaf should have stayed a working-class singer peddling songs on street corners. When she was touring the unoccupied zone in France, she took German-born Jewish pianist Norbert Landsberg with her. All the rights to his songs had been revoked by the occupying Nazis, and he relied heavily upon Edith, who was now his only source of income. The two would soon have an affair, which served to end her previous one with Paul. 
Soon, Jews were banned from most professions, and Glansberg's name could no longer appear in the programs for Edith's shows. He was now a Frenchman named Pierre Minet, trying hard not to let his German accent betray his real identity. Eventually, even that was not enough, and Edith found him a hiding place on a friend's farm. That farm belonged to her secretary, André Bigard. He would hide several of Edith's Jewish friends at her request. Soon, even the farm wasn't safe enough. Nazis were carrying out searches looking for Jews every day. Edith made arrangements through Countess Lily Pastre to hide him in her chateau, with Edith paying for his supplies and protection. The Countess maintained good relations with the German authorities, all the while hiding around 40 Jewish musicians right under their noses. In hiding, it wasn't easy for Edith and Glansberg to see one another. Rendezvous were too risky. By the end of the war, she would have a different lover, though she would continue to play for Glansberg's care. Back north in Paris, things were disastrous. Jewish citizens were made to wear yellow six-pointed stars, and there was propaganda everywhere feeding the anti-Semitic regime. Thousands of Jewish men, women, and children were arrested in Paris, then sent to the Dranzi Transit and Internment Camp before being deported to concentration camps to die. Non-Jewish Parisians were suffering from occupation, food shortages, power cuts, and a lack of public transport. If you wanted a supply of butter, eggs, or cheese, you needed money and access to the black market. After a year of living and touring in the unoccupied zone, Edith returned to Paris and a public eager to have its favorite singer back. During her first show back in Paris, she sang a song written by a Jewish composer and sang a song called Où sont-ils mes petits copains, which means Where are my friends, hinting at the forced relocation of Jewish Parisians. For this song, she had the stage lit in the red, white, and blue of the French flag, this was risky, but Edith was a big enough star to take risks. According to Burke, the next day she was forced to go to the propaganda office where she was told she had to replace her lighting with a neutral spotlight. Edith was a big name. She knew it, and the occupiers knew it. She continued to break the rules. After refusing to remove songs from a Jewish composer from her set list, she was banned from performing for a month. Edith wasn't the only one feeling a growing sense of hostility towards the Nazi occupiers. The French resistance was doing everything it could to make things as difficult as possible for the Germans. They rioted, destroyed power lines, attacked railways, all at great risk to their lives. And soon, the resistance found an ally in Edith Piaf. According to Burke, in August of 1943, Edith was invited to sing in Germany for French prisoners of war. It was an invitation she literally couldn't refuse. She, along with her secretary André Dede Bigard, who was an active member of the resistance, visited several Stalags, camps where French prisoners of war were kept. Edith would go on two tours in Germany to these Stalags. There are newspaper articles and numerous photos of Edith visiting these camps and interacting with the prisoners. She also had photos taken of her with many of the prisoners. Those photos disappeared. They were kept by Edith and Dede for a specific purpose. 
Between her two German tours, Dede and the French Resistance used those photos to make false identity cards. During her second trip, Edith packed her suitcase with these fake identities, along with supplies like maps, money, and compasses meant to aid in escape. These escape kits were secretly given out to French prisoners of war on her second tour. She visited 11 stalags on her second trip to Germany, and according to Edith in an interview she gave later, 118 of these cards were handed out. According to Day-Day, they had to stop giving out these fake IDs because the Germans began growing suspicious when prisoners began to escape after Edith Piaf's visits. Some of the escapees would even join Edith's entourage, posing as musicians. According to Burke, at one camp, when the suspicious soldiers told her to leave, she feigned illness in order to gain time so the prisoners who were going to join them later wouldn't be caught. After that, the plan was obviously too dangerous, and they had to stop distributing cards and kits. If the Nazis had caught Edith Piaf helping French prisoners of war escape, her story would have ended here. At that point, not even her celebrity would have been able to save her. After the war, a liberated France carried out what was called the Éparation Sauvage, or the Wild Purge. This was a period of time when those who'd been accused of aiding the Nazis during France's occupation underwent a sort of trial, which was oftentimes informal. According to political scientist Michael Curtis, between 9 and 10,000 Nazi collaborators were killed during the Wild Purge. After that came the Operation Légale, or the Legal Purge, and another 768 people were executed, showing us all again that you don't want to find yourself on the wrong end of a French resistance or revolution. Because Edith had toured Germany during the war, she was questioned. However, because she helped shelter Jewish friends and colleagues along with her role in helping 118 prisoners of war escape Germany, she was unanimously released of any charges by the examining panel, who said simply, no sanctions and congratulations. There are skeptics who question Edith's role in the resistance because the accounts we have of what she did only come from her and those who were with her. According to an article from Snopes, skeptics cite the lack of multiple corroborating accounts and the fact that the mission would have been extremely dangerous. Considering Edith's disdain for her occupiers, the fact she'd publicly disobeyed the propaganda censors several times, resulting in her own censorship, all coupled with her fiery personality, which is corroborated. I'm inclined to believe that Edith and Day-Day really did distribute 118 ID cards and escape supplies. But as a fan, I am biased, and the numbers she herself gave had been exaggerated by others. I found one article saying she saved thousands of people, which Edith never even said she did. Edith specifically gave the number 118. Still, I felt I needed to mention the skeptics, and I'll put the Snopes article in the show notes, since I shouldn't be taking out legitimate perspectives from a historical account, just because I don't agree with them. Several big events took place, I mean, other than the end of World War II, after Edith returned from her trips to Germany. First, Edith had written many of her own songs by this point, and had applied to SACOM, the Society of Authors, Composers, and Publishers of Music, which had been established in 1851. This would have given her professional status as a lyricist. 
She was denied acceptance in 1943, but later accepted when she applied again in 1944. She would go on to write around a hundred songs over her career. Next, Edith was hired to sing at the reopening of the Moulin Rouge, which had been used as a cinema during much of the war. Edith also discovered that while she was away, her father had died. Despite the issues the two had, Edith always cared for her father. She bought him clothes, an apartment, hired a houseman for him, and he visited her several times a week after he was no longer barred from her life once Asso left, though according to Burke, he never stayed long enough to have lunch. He passed away at the age of 63, and Edith mourned him, often returning to put violets on his grave. His passing provided the opportunity for a family reunion of sorts. She saw her brother Herbert and her half-sister Denise, who turned 13 the day of her father's funeral. Edith didn't go to the funeral, saying she was too grief-stricken to attend. Learning her little sister Denise's first communion was going to be in May, Edith took her sister shopping, buying her a traditional first communion outfit, along with a gold cross. Edith wasn't close to her siblings. She had her own entourage by now, though that entourage still included Mamone, who had just stolen several pairs of Edith's shoes to sell in Pigalle. It was hard to keep track of the comings and goings of Mamone over Edith's lifetime. While Edith's father had passed away, her mother was still in her life, and that was always a point of tension for Edith. Her mother, Lean Marsa, was constantly in and out of prison due to her drug addiction. Edith sent her mother money each month, as she had her father. She also paid for her mother's legal fees when she needed them. Unlike the cordial visits from her father, her mother's visits were usually contentious. She would show up drunk at Edith's shows or her apartment, and she'd sometimes show up singing loudly beneath Edith's apartment window until either Edith or someone from her circle would throw money down out the window. By now, Edith had a new lover, a man named Yves Montan, who was hired to open for her at the Moulin Rouge. Like she had in the past with Paul, she mentored him during their romance, even writing songs for him, and the 23-year-old was eager to have her help his career, though Edith could be a demanding collaborator. She worked hard and expected others to do the same. Often she'd have her collaborators play throughout the night as she rehearsed until dawn. Though the accounts of composers and artists she worked with described her as demanding, they also said she was motivating. Burke said of it, quote, Though she was often tyrannical with collaborators, Edith was always inspiring. She then goes on to quote Contet, one of her lovers and composers, who said, Her enthusiasm compensated for all the rest. Though he also added, You ended up writing what she wanted. Eve went on tour with Edith, and when they reached Marseille, he introduced her to his family. They were Italian immigrants who'd settled in Marseille. His sister Lydia would become a friend of Edith's, and she said Edith had been, quote, "...shaken by our noisy celebration and seemed surprised that we talked so much and so fast, but she was also attracted to our warm family spirit." Edith never had a big, warm family, and despite surrounding herself with friends, collaborators, and all the hangers-on that come with celebrity, it must have been a warm, surprisingly safe feeling to be welcomed by a family that genuinely enjoyed one another's company. 
After their tour, Edith and Eve booked a month-long show at the A12 Theater. Days before the opening, Edith's mother died of a drug overdose. According to Burke, the body of the 49-year-old had been left out on the sidewalk by the man she lived with before it was taken to the morgue. She arranged for her mother's burial at the TA cemetery, but she did not attend the funeral. It was a painful ending to a painful chapter. After Edith's own death, her father and daughter would be laid to rest next to her. Her mother would not. Edith continued to tour with Yves Montand, who was now a rising star himself, shaped and set on course in no small part by Edith, who continued to write songs. At a Parisian cafe, she began scribbling down lyrics on a paper tablecloth. Those lyrics would become the song La Vie en Rose, or Life in Pink, one of her most famous songs and one that's still covered by artists today. According to Burke, some critics didn't like the new direction her songs were taking. She was venturing out of her old repertoire. One critic wrote she should stick to her songs about, quote, small-time hoods and whores, things that are simple and true. Edith was now a powerhouse of professionalism and had finally found her confidence, at least on stage. Some preferred the more naive, insecure Edith, who one critic called, quote, my poor dear little Moam Piaf. This was the 1940s. Many critics didn't like confident women, especially if they lived unconventionally. Many still don't. And Edith was a force on stage. So was her protege and lover Yves Montand, and the two had started drifting apart. Some said it was professional rivalry, some said the relationship they had simply had run its course. He ended their relationship via a cabled message which is the mid-20th century version of breaking up with someone via a text message. Edith had known their relationship was failing and was okay with its end. However, she may have missed the companionship and the warmth she'd experienced from his family. She wrote to her longtime friend Jacques Bourgit, quote, I am a woman in great pain who feels very much alone. Edith entered her 30s and, as always, found the solace she craved in her songs, the true love of her life. In 10 years, she had gone from a street singer to a legend with a 60-piece orchestra. The next few years would be a collage of tours, performances, lovers, and collaborators. Like a fine bottle of wine, her onstage presence and force of talent only grew better with time. Poet and artist Jean Cocteau wrote of what it was like to watch her perform, saying, quote, A voice rises up, deep from within, a voice that inhabits her from head to toe, unfolding like a wave of warm black velvet to submerge us, piercing through us, getting right inside us. The illusion is complete. Edith Piaf, like an invisible nightingale on her branch, herself becomes invisible. There's just her gaze, her pale hands, her waxen forehead catching the light, and the voice that swells, mounts up, and gradually replaces her. Edith worked constantly. She was breaking records with ticket sales and performing so much that she lost her voice several times. Edith was voracious when it came to her work. There would be times later when she should have stopped. Times when her health, both physical and mental, were on the line but she would refuse to quit performing, even when her friends and doctors begged her to. 
Living fast and hard 100% of the time isn't sustainable for anyone, and Edith's refusal to slow down, along with her addictions and health issues, which would only grow more severe, would eventually be her undoing. In the meantime, she kept going. She went on tour in the U.S., and she would return here many times. She began learning English before her first U.S. tour, and many of her songs, including La Vie and Rose, were translated into English for her American audiences. Tickets sold for a whopping $4. Opening night of her first American tour, celebrities like Lena Horne, Gene Kelly, Greta Garbo, and Marlene Dietrich were in audience. Dietrich would become a close friend of Edith's, and she has appeared in this podcast before. If you listened to the series on Joe Carstairs, you may remember she was one of Joe's friends, and reportedly one of her lovers. I love when the histories I've covered meet up unexpectedly. During her tour, Edith had an affair with American actor John Garfield. Their affair ended in just a few weeks after John introduced Edith to his wife. He was not the first or the last married man Edith would become involved with. Enter Marcel Serdan. He was a French-Algerian boxer known as Le Bombardier Moroccan, or the Moroccan Bomber. He met Edith while she was in New York. He was training for the World Middleweight Championship, and despite the fact he was married, he and Edith began one of the lengthiest relationships she'd ever have. His managers weren't happy about their affair, not necessarily because Marcel was married, but because his training regimen included mandatory celibacy. The two had come from similar backgrounds, working their way out of poverty, she with her voice, he with a pair of boxing gloves. They were besotted with one another, though their affair was kept secret. This wasn't easy, as they were both celebrities. Their affair carried over from New York to Paris, and as the months carried on, their passion only seemed to grow. After returning to Paris, Edith met a fan of hers, even more famous than herself, the Princess Elizabeth of York, who would later become the UK's longest reigning monarch. Her father, King George VI, was also a fan, and the princess told Piaf the king wanted copies of her new records. The starstruck Edith berated herself for babbling when introduced to the princess, saying later, quote, When I went outside, I told myself, Dear Edith, you must have struck her as the queen of dummies. Edith and Marcel carried on their affair, one that was increasingly difficult to hide. She went to several of his matches, and the papers reported that the two were seeing each other daily. According to Burke, over the next year, Edith planned her schedule around Marcel, while simultaneously evading the mounting public interest in their affair. Over the course of their relationship, Edith lavished him with gifts, clothes, books, fine food, an expensive watch. But no matter what she did to try and win him, he was not interested in leaving his wife. Before his match against world middleweight champion Tony Zale, Edith took Marcel to a place deeply precious to her, the Shrine of St. Therese in Lisieux. As a child, the women she lived with at the brothel took her here each week to pray for St. Therese to help cure her blindness. Though she had been given eye medicine by a doctor to help cure her severe eye infection of keratitis, for the rest of her life she ascribed her healing to St. Therese, who she took on as her own personal saint. 
she brought Marcel here to pray for the saint's protection. This, more than anything else I read, proved to me just how much Marcel meant to Edith. That day she bought a statue of Saint Therese. It remained at her bedside table for the rest of her life, and was buried with her after her death. Marcel's next match in September of 1948 was arguably the most important of his career. It took place at Roosevelt Stadium in Jersey City, and the odds were 8-5 to five in favor of his opponent, Tony Zale, known as the Man of Steel. After a brutal 12 rounds, Marcel hit his opponent with a powerful right uppercut. It was a winning blow, and it made Marcel the new middleweight world champion. The next night, Edith performed a show in the States that had been sold out for weeks. The two lovers were both at a high point in their careers. The two went to Coney Island, rode the roller coaster, the merry-go-round, and were delighted to buy tickets for some kids who recognized Marcel as the new champion. Edith wrote, quote, Never in my life have I loved like this. But Marcel was already married. This was something always in the back of Edith's mind, and it was something her friend Mamone would use to her advantage. During an outburst, a drunken Mamone said she was going to the press about their affair. At the time, Mamone was in New York, since Edith had brought her friend on tour with her. Now, after threatening to out the pair, she was on a plane headed back to France. Mamone pressed charges against Edith and Marcel, saying she had been subjected to violence and illegal detention. This was because they'd locked her in their apartment while waiting for the flight to take her back to Paris. In the end, Edith gave Mamone a large settlement, at which point Mamone withdrew the charges and apologized. Edith forgave her, like she always did, though she must have known this wouldn't be the last of her friend's outbursts, and it wouldn't be the worst. The incident went public. Edith tried telling the papers Marcel wanted her at his matches for good luck. This difficult-to-believe narrative was something they kept up for the next nine months. The two spent some time apart, geographically. After writing more songs, Edith went on a tour in Egypt, and Marcel kept fighting in various matches to retain his middleweight championship title. In Detroit, in June of 1949, he lost that title to Jake LaModa. Marcel injured his shoulder in the first round. For ten rounds, he fought with one arm, eventually retiring to his corner and losing his title. The devastated Marcel healed, trained, and planned a rematch with Lamoda in December at Madison Square Garden, determined to win his title back. He decided to return to New York early, where Edith was at the time, to train until the big fight. On October 28th, 1949, Marcel boarded a flight heading from Paris to New York. That plane would never land on a runway again. Marcel's flight went down over the Azores. Everyone on board was killed. Edith was inconsolable. Not wanting to believe her lover was dead, she lit a candle at a nearby church, praying that someone would find him alive. But it was no use. By the time Edith uttered her prayer, he was already gone. They identified his body 
by the watch she had given him. She thought of suicide after losing Marcel, telling her longtime friend Bourgit, quote, I can think of only one thing to join him. According to Burke, after Marcel's death, Edith began suffering from acute arthritic pain in her joints, and these chronic attacks would plague her for the rest of her life. Her friends believed the pain was brought on by the stress of losing Marcel, which was just the latest in a long line of sudden loss and death the now 34-year-old Edith had already experienced in her life. The vulnerability Edith was feeling was like bait to her old friend Mamone, who saw this as an opportunity to exploit Edith's grief. For the next two years, Mamone would conduct seances using a turning table. This device was a small table participants could lay their hands on. It could rotate, and although anyone touching it could be responsible for turning it, its movement was prescribed to spirits. The alphabet would be said aloud, and the table would turn to whichever letter the spirit or person rotating it wanted it to land on, giving answers to questions asked. During these seances, Mamone told Edith that Marcel wanted her to give gifts to herself and her friends, despite the fact that she had tried ruining his reputation. Several of Edith's closest friends tried telling her this was just another one of Mamone's manipulations. But even if she knew that, Edith didn't care. The seances, even if they were just Mamone looking for money and gifts, were comforting to a grieving Edith. Edith's closest friends posited that she would have eventually left Marcel, or he her, because one, she'd never had a lasting relationship, and two, he was already married, and Edith couldn't have lived long with simply being someone's mistress. However, her friends also said that after Marcel's death, Edith was never the same. This next bit seems like an odd arrangement. Edith contacted Marcel's widow and moved her, along with Marcel's two sons, to a large residence she had built for Marcel in Boulogne. She moved in with them and took care of them financially. Mamone also moved in with Edith, and other members of her entourage had rooms as well. At one point she said, I don't know if I'm an artist or everyone's mother. By now, Edith had a new lover, Tony Frank, but traded him in quickly for a young American named Eddie Constantine. They met when Edith was translating her new songs into English. He was her translator. His accent was so terrible, she laughed the first time she heard him speak. Still, they fell in love, though it wasn't the same love she'd felt for Marcel. Eddie soon moved into the Boulogne residence as well. According to Burke, Eddie also took part in the seances, where he said Marcel gave his blessing for him to become his successor. Some thought this was only Eddie wishing to further his music career through a relationship with Edith, and she did greatly help his career. There were a lot of people who genuinely cared for Edith. There were also plenty who saw her as someone they could use. When the memory of Marcel was evoked, she was easy to manipulate. As for Eddie, he would go the way of all the others, and by the end of the summer, she'd have a new Monsieur Piaf, as her companions would say. A bicycle champion, who would also eventually fall out of her affections. It was hard to keep track of all of Edith's lovers while researching this. Edith, as always, threw herself into her work to combat her grief, though she was pushing herself too hard. After nearly collapsing several times on stage, a doctor told her she was gravely anemic, 
Her doctor wrote her a prescription, which helped. However, over the next year, Edith would increasingly become dependent on prescription drugs. In 1951, Edith was rushed to the hospital on several occasions due to intestinal issues. That meant more doctors and more drugs. By now, she was dependent on both drugs and alcohol. Though she would try to give them up more than once, she would never be free from her addictions. Given her family history and the amount of trauma she'd faced, Edith's battle with addiction was increasingly severe. In July of 1951, on the way to a show, Edith's composer, friend, and former mentee, Charles Aznavour, was driving when he lost control of the vehicle. Edith was injured, but okay. She performed the next night with her arm in a sling. Edith never missed a show if she could help it. She'd gone on stage after hearing of Marcel's death, went on stage at Carnegie Hall in 1957 with bronchitis and sang 23 songs, and this complete refusal to put health, physical, or mental over performances would become a trend. Only three weeks after her car accident, her newest lover, the cyclist André Pousse, crashed the car they were in, resulting in yet another, more serious accident. This time, she had to be rushed to Paris for surgery. She had a badly broken arm and multiple fractured ribs. She was in the hospital until the end of August and left with an immobilized arm and a morphine addiction. As Edith was healing and struggling with her newest addiction, Mamone decided it was an opportune time to steal a bunch of Edith's things. According to Burke, she stole personal papers, jewelry, clothes, and everything her deceased lover Marcel had given her. Mamone took them and gave them to her own boyfriend. This time, Edith didn't think she could forgive her. To make things worse, the day before Edith's birthday, the authorities came to her home in Boulogne searching for items that had been stolen from her newest lover, another cyclist named Toto. Edith was cleared of any suspicion, but the papers got a hold of the story, which ignited another scandal. Amid all this turbulation, Edith did what she always did. She wrote songs and sang, finding comfort in her music and her audience. Hoping she and Toto would have a child, Edith tried to stop drinking, but to no avail. The child she lost when she was 20 years old would be the only one she would ever have. Despite everything Edith had and would continue to face, she always tried having an optimistic outlook. Her friends told of how she loved to laugh, loved life, and though her lows were incredibly dark, she said once, quote, The greater one's suffering, the greater one's joy. There's always a bit of blue sky somewhere. Edith decided she needed a change. She sold the house in Boulogne and moved back to Paris in 1952. With her new apartment came a new lover. Known as Monsieur Charm in the U.S., Jacques Peels was a singer and had met Edith some years before. The two collaborated on a song called Jeté dans le peu, or I've Got You Under My Skin. They went on tour together, and by autumn, they were engaged. Famous actress and now good friend Marlene Dietrich was her maid of honor. On September 20th, 1952, they were married in New York. The night they married, they performed a show together. The following day, they appeared on The Ed Sullivan Show. Edith would appear on his show so many times, she would become a regular. 
The two had married quickly after falling in love. Jacques was a stable presence in Edith's life, but it's possible he didn't know just how deep her addiction went. He started to notice how much she drank. Then there was the morphine, the cortisone, and the sleeping pills. He tried constantly to get her to stop relying on her vices, but to no real use. The two went on tour in the U.S. On the way, they visited Edith's sister Denise, who now lived in Montreal. Denise was shocked at the physical changes caused by her sister's cortisone addiction. She saw her sister's puffy face, painful feet, and later her hands that had started to deform. There were shows in Los Angeles, San Francisco, Las Vegas, which were coupled with rendezvous from famous Americans like Joan Crawford, Lena Horne, and Humphrey Bogart. Soon, Edith began to miss her beloved Paris and was happy to return home. Jacques Peel's sister Simone moved in to help Edith with her arthritic attacks, which called for more morphine. Jacques kept trying to get Edith to reduce how much she drank. She said she'd compromise by switching to only white wine. Suffering from insomnia and always seeming to prefer night over day for creative endeavors, Edith began rehearsals at midnight. At 3 a.m., she and her collaborators would eat, then she'd sing again until everyone went to bed at dawn. Simone said that most of Edith's money went to her friends, and that some of those friends were simply there to use her. They'd eat her food and borrow large sums of money without any intention of paying it back. Edith genuinely wanted to keep working, but even if she hadn't, the fact that she was spending more than she made wouldn't have given her much of a choice. Jacques persuaded Edith to enter rehab several times, but she would never stay in recovery for very long. Before going to a clinic, she would drink several bottles of wine the night before. According to Burke, they took her to a clinic that specialized in aversion therapy. Here, they would give her all the wine she wanted before administering vomiting-inducing drugs. This was intended to give Edith an aversion to alcohol, but it was such an agonizing treatment that it took her weeks to recover each time. She underwent this specific type of therapy on three different occasions. Apparently, aversion therapy is still a thing, though it's controversial, and many health professionals say it's ineffective, as it treats only an addiction itself and not addictive behaviors. Though Edith was now married to Jacques, she would have her entourage accompany her to masses held in memory of Marcel. According to Simone, Marcel was still an obsession. She would lavish gifts on his sons and his widow and continued to have them live with her for months at a time. According to Burke, her husband Jacques humored these masses, gifts, and the obsession of her deceased lover. That could not have been an easy thing to do. Edith was slipping, mentally and physically, but refused to slow down. Before every show, she used morphine. She carried on playing sold-out shows, had TV appearances, radio broadcasts, and acted in several films. In 1954, Edith celebrated her millionth record. These days, that doesn't sound like many, but back then, it was huge, even for someone as famous as Edith. Her friends urged her to slow down and take some time off. Instead, she booked a grueling 80-city tour. 
She toured with Achille Zavada's Super Circus, something that must have brought back strong memories for Edith as she traveled with her father while he was in the circus, starting at age seven. She performed in Barnet, where she once lived in her grandmother's brothel. Performing there with the circus must have been a doubly nostalgic event, and not all those memories were happy ones. After the tour, she spent more time in the clinic. Afterwards, she was bedridden for six weeks and diagnosed with peritonitis. According to the Mayo Clinic, that is a condition that starts in the abdomen and occurs when the thin layer of tissue inside the abdomen becomes inflamed, usually due to an infection from fungi or bacteria. For this, she needed surgery in order to remove the infected tissue. That meant more recuperation and more drugs. She began working again as soon as she could, writing songs, appearing everywhere, and was once paid 700,000 francs for a three-minute appearance in the film French Can-Can. She and Jacques toured the U.S. again, though he left early to play a major role in a musical in London. Edith stayed in the States and had her first affair. His name was Jean Dréjac, and he was into Rosicrucianism, something Edith would pursue. Edith had always been spiritual and had strong faith in God and her patron saint, Therese. Though she wasn't conventionally religious, Rosicrucianism gave her a means to practice her spirituality. This is an esoteric order which originated in Europe in the 1600s. According to Britannica, it's a mix of occultism and other religious beliefs and practices, like Christian Gnosticism, Jewish mysticism, and Hermeticism. Edith was always searching for something, usually love and lasting happiness, both of which continued to elude her. Marriage wasn't as easy as Edith and Jacques had hoped. Soon they started booking separate venues rather than performing together. Edith continued her affair through the summer, and rumor has it she also had a fling with Marlon Brando, though I couldn't find any substantial evidence on that one. Her friend Chevalier wrote of her state, quote, She's a moving bundle of complexes mixing courage, talent, and frality with a nervous energy that inundates her little body and shows in her anxious eyes. In June of 1956, Edith and Jacques announced their divorce. Despite what had become a series of affairs as she toured the states, Cuba, Mexico, and Brazil over a 14-month period without her husband, the two parted ways cordially and would remain friends. Edith continued on a destructive streak of drugs, lovers, tours, and appearances. Physical exhaustion wouldn't stop her from performing. When a doctor told her to cancel a show at Carnegie Hall, she told him, I didn't bring you here for that. Your job is to give me an injection so I can last two hours on stage. He complied. In 1958, the 43-year-old Edith broke attendance records at the Olympia, Paris's oldest music hall. By then, she was so successful that the only records she had left to break were her own that she'd set three years earlier in 1955. She performed every day for five weeks with three shows on Sundays. The house was sold out every night. This pace was too much, and finally, not even Edith could withstand the fatigue, which was only worsened by her health issues and drug dependence. She collapsed on stage. 
Despite concerns from doctors and friends, she didn't stop. She extended her run at the Olympia by another three weeks. According to Burke, by the end of her Olympia engagement, she'd performed 128 times for 240,000 spectators. She was running on a cocktail of stimulants, barbiturates, sleeping pills, and coffee. The stimulants were so she could go on stage, and the tranquilizers were to help her sleep. They would inject her before she sang. It was the only way she could last for an entire show. In May, she collapsed on stage again in Stockholm. The papers began questioning her health. She was exhausted, addicted, and battling depression. Still, she wouldn't slow down. Only a few days before she was to leave for a show in New York, her new young lover, the 25-year-old Joe Mustaki, hit a truck head-on with Edith in the car. This was her third major car accident. She was rushed to the hospital unconscious with two tendons severed in her left arm and a lip that needed to be sutured. Her trip to the U.S. was canceled. A month after her recovery, the two got into another car accident in the same spot. She wasn't as injured in this fourth accident, and despite how much it hurt when she opened her mouth from her lip injury during the previous accident, she went on tour. In 1959, her health continued to decline. After spitting up blood and fainting, a doctor diagnosed her with an ulcer that had been brought on by the large amount of medicines she was taking for her arthritis and other issues. Two days later, she was back on stage. Six days later, she was given two blood transfusions because her ulcer was hemorrhaging. After another surgery, she was hospitalized for a month. This was soon followed by a second operation and another month of hospitalization. When she left the hospital, she weighed 80 pounds. A month later, she was on tour again. That summer, while in a car with her newest lover, an American this time, named Doug Davis, he lost control of the wheel and Edith was in a fifth car accident. I mean, come on. She had two broken ribs and finished her tour in bandages. The two lovers parted ways after her tour, with Davis stating, quote, It was unbearable. She's killing everyone with her impossible way of life. That fall, she had another surgery for pancreatitis. Two months later, she began performing again, performances which were interspersed with hospital visits. Everyone thought she was going to die that this would be her last tour. She left the stage in a northern French town after forgetting words to two of her songs. Backstage, a doctor gave her whatever cocktail of barbiturates she used to continue, and she went back on stage again, only to have her voice fail mid-song. People began calling it her suicide tour, which I think is in such poor taste. Photos of her looking ill were published in the papers. Her face was swollen, her hair was thinning, her hands were now contorted from arthritis and complications from addiction, and at times she could barely speak. She just kept performing, running exclusively on injections and stubbornness. It was almost like she wanted to crash and burn. One night, an obviously ill Edith Piaf clutched the microphone in front of her so she could keep standing. 
She made it through eight songs before collapsing. She was hospitalized in Paris. She was released on her 44th birthday. If you look at pictures of Edith Piaf in her last years, you'd think you were looking at someone's grandmother. She was young, but the years of alcohol abuse, drug abuse, addictions, depression, arthritis, and unresolved trauma took their toll on her so gravely it was like she'd experienced the pain and degradation of two lifetimes by the age of 44. A week later, she was back in the hospital, now with jaundice. This time, her body refused to let her continue, and she spent six months recuperating. She wrote in her journal, quote, No more injections. Don't let yourself go physically. See only those who bring you comfort and spiritual enrichment. Give up passions that harm you, renounce your desires, try to rediscover yourself. That June, she went into a coma from acute liver damage caused by the years of pills and alcohol. She survived, though it was close. Her summer house was sold to pay her bills. After contracting dysentery, she was bedridden once again. Edith was at a low point. And it was when her darkest hour approached that she found her greatest song. Lyricist Michael Vauquer and composer Charles Dumont came to see her. She was tired, depressed, and not interested in company. But she relented and listened as she heard the song Je ne regrette rien for the first time. This song, called I Regret Nothing, spoke to Edith in a way that electrified her with a motivation she hadn't felt in years. She made them play it over 20 times in a row. Five days later, she recorded it. I can't afford the rights to play you this song, but please go listen to it and think about Edith's life when you do. Her friends said this song was a miracle. It revitalized Edith, who agreed to book another engagement at the Olympia Theater, one that would save it from bankruptcy. She took the stage at the Olympia again in 1960, after no one believed she ever would. Her hair was thinning, her body was hunched and twisted from years of pain and grief as she slowly slipped back into her iconic black dress. Her knotted hands gripped the microphone as she steadied herself, and despite all odds, the little sparrow flew once again this time as a phoenix rising from the ashes of her grief, self-doubt, and a lifetime of broken hearts. Opening night, she received 22 curtain calls, the audience refusing to let her go. It was a huge success. The audience didn't know she was receiving injections of the stimulant Coramine before each show, or that she had to be carried to her dressing room afterwards. They didn't know about the cortisone, or the dilosal she used for pain, or that she fought through fits of vertigo as she sang for them. She kept going. After saving the Olympia, she recorded 19 more songs. That spring, she was back in hospital for another surgery, this time for intestinal adhesions. There were complications, and she had another operation two weeks later. According to Burke, it was her eighth surgery in two and a half years. 
That fall, she lost her longtime friend and composer Marguerite Minot, who died from a ruptured appendix. Her friend's death hit her hard. The following spring, she was hospitalized again with bronchial pneumonia. After being released, she consoled herself with songs and rehearsals. Soon, she fell in love again. This time, it was a coiffeur with dreams of becoming a singer named Teo Serapo. He was 26. Edith was 47. She mentored him, as she often did with young aspiring artists, and though her associates said it wasn't a passionate relationship, by July, they were engaged. She recorded more songs and booked another show at the Olympia in 1962. Teo and Edith were married in October in a civil ceremony by the mayor of Paris. Thousands of spectators showed up with what felt like just as many journalists eager to snap a photo of Edith and her new young beau. So many people showed up that, according to Burke, six busloads of police officers had to monitor the crowds. The couple went on tour together for six weeks, performing two shows a day. That was a hard schedule, and Edith was obviously fading. The next year, by 1963, Edith knew she wouldn't live much longer. She recorded herself talking about her life and the things she experienced. She said, perhaps bringing the song that revitalized her to mind, quote, I've never regretted anything. Each experience brought something. In April of 1963, Edith was rushed to the hospital for a blood transfusion before she slipped into a coma. Teo donated his own blood, as they were both type A. When she recovered enough to leave the hospital, she weighed 66 pounds. She already had plans to start rehearsing again, but in June she fell into another coma that lasted eight days. Still, she awoke and survived. That August, a doctor who, according to Burke, was unaware of her medical history, prescribed her a diuretic that sent her into another coma. She was in and out for ten days. In September, Edith moved to Place Cassier, where it was quiet and beautiful. She didn't get many visitors. Only her closest friends remained, all the hangers-on and users having left when things became difficult. Her nurse said, quote, She goes from exaggerated gaiety to dark despair. When she's depressed, she keeps saying, I paid a great price for my stupidity. I fear she's lost her will for the first time in her life. Her old frenemy, Mamone, called and asked Edith if she could come see her. Edith told her nurse to say she was too tired. Edith wasn't interested in seeing Mamone again though Mamone would show up anyway. It wasn't the great deathbed reconciliation Mamone wanted, but she'd fabricate a story about it later. In October, Edith was bedridden. No longer able to sing, she just laid in bed and listened to all of her recordings. On October 10th, 1963, Edith was hemorrhaging internally. Her loved ones did what they could, held her hand, made her comfortable, and finally called a priest to administer her last rites. That afternoon, with an unexpected bolt of energy, Edith sat up in bed and stared at something in the distance. 
Then, just as suddenly, she fell back down, never to rise again. Death had finally come for the little sparrow. She was 47 years old. Upon hearing of Edith's death, her lifelong friend, the famous poet Jean Cocteau, gave a eulogy on the radio. An hour later, he died. Her funeral in Paris drew a crowd of 40,000. Edith was dressed in her favorite black dress. A rose was placed in one hand, an orchid in the other. According to Burke, the Archbishop of Paris refused to hold mass for Edith as she had been divorced. However, a priest who claimed Edith had once restored his faith defied the Vatican and blessed her body. Paris wept as Edith Piaf was carried to Père Lachaise Cemetery and laid to rest in the company of Oscar Wilde, Molière, Chopin, and Marie Dubas. Her father and daughter rest beside her. 300,000 of her records sold the weekend after she died. A week later, you couldn't find a single record still left for sale in France. They were completely sold out. Today, if you go to Père Lachaise Cemetery in Paris, you can find her grave by the numerous bouquets that still cover it 60 years after her death. But she isn't really gone, is she? Because her voice remains. We can still hear the songs of the little sparrow as they haunt us, comfort us, and remind us that, even when things are at their darkest, there's always a bit of blue sky somewhere. We talked a lot about substance abuse in this series because that was a huge factor in Edith Piaf's life. If she'd received the treatment she needed, which is more accessible today than it was so many decades ago, we may have well had many more songs and years from Edith Piaf. According to the National Drug Helpline, only 11% of people who need substance abuse treatment at a specialty facility receive the help they require. If you or someone you know is struggling with addiction, there is help. You can call the National Drug Helpline at 1-844-289-0879. All calls are toll-free and confidential. It's never too late to get help, and there is no such thing as a lost cause. This was an extra-long episode that probably should have just been two separate episodes, or maybe even three, but I promised y'all I'd get it done in two parts. I sincerely hope you enjoyed the history of the astounding Edith Piaf and that her story only enriches her songs for you. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. I can't say enough how much it means to me that you took the time to listen to my independent podcast. If you like the show, please consider rating and following on iTunes or wherever you listen. This really does help make the show more visible. I'll be back again in three weeks with more history for you. Until then, if you'd like to get a hold of me, you can email me at historycashpodcast at gmail.com. You can find me on Twitter, sometimes, and Instagram, most of the time. I try to post there more often. If you'd like to help support the show, you can check out my Patreon page at patreon.com slash historycashpodcast. You can also make a one-time donation. 
You can access the link for that on the website under the support tab. That website is historycashpodcast.podbean.com. Background music and sound effects are licensed through Envato Elements, theme song through Audio Jungle. Stay safe, stay smart, stay curious. And until we meet again, my dear friends, go make some history.